Well, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, as we begin a new sermon series through this uh, wonderful book of Moses. Now, before we read our text, I want to make a few introductory comments about this sermon series and why we're doing it and why, as you've just moments ago discovered, we're doing it in the morning. Uh, Many of you came here expecting and perhaps excited uh, for a sermon on the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And no, I have not simply swapped out one genealogy for another here in Exodus chapter 1, but my plan up until late this week had been to preach through Matthew in the mornings and Exodus in the evenings. Recently, however, I was prompted to pray about this and have decided uh, with the encouragement and confirmation of some of the elders that we need a series on Exodus in the morning. We need it for our church's health and for our individual health and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and for our children. I believe Exodus is integral to our understanding of the covenant of God. Uh, we've already had a sermon series on Genesis recently, recently, which unpacks the initiation and the opening sort of remarks about many of these covenants, but they come to fruition, many of them, or the working out of them is expounded for us in Exodus. And as reformed, as a reformed church that is founded upon covenant theology, our awareness of this in its Old Testament expression is exceptionally important. It's important because this book is for us. It's for the church. This whole Bible is the testimony of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. The whole Bible teaches us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The whole Bible teaches that. And so spending time in Exodus, of course, is helpful for us simply because it's the Word of God, all of it having been breathed out by Him and profitable. Too many Christians and too many Bible teachers and pastors have largely ignored large portions, swaths of the Old Testament, uh, and, and excuse it by a number of reasons. It's a really a history, a history of Israel. It's for them and not for us. Uh, Christ abrogated it all. Whatever the answer may be or the catchphrase you may have heard before as to why books like Exodus are seldomly preached through in churches across our land, I think it's a major mistake because of the import of a book like this for our faith. Uh, for us as husbands and wives and single people, for old and young and men and women and parents of children. Uh, I continually meet people who are new to our church, attending Christ's Covenant Church for the first time, or perhaps new members who came up in a background or come from a church setting where the Old Testament was largely ignored. The covenants of God were not explained. The relationship between the church and the Old Testament and the church in the new is not made clear. And some people, even among us this morning, have very little awareness of how to take a passage like Exodus 1 and integrate it into their own life and worldview, to be changed by this list of names that went down to Egypt thousands of years ago. What's the point? Well, I think there's an incredible point to this passage. Lastly, the reason we're studying Exodus and the reason we're studying it in the mornings 
is because a large part of our corporate growth, the, the numerical growth that God has been pleased to grant us in recent months and years, has been through the addition of covenant children. Our covenant children are evidence of God's faithfulness, and they are recipients of God's promises. And so for us, many of whom are parents, or as I said in the covenant of this last week, whether they're my covenant children or yours, together as a body, we share an obligation to raise our covenant children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to pursue the holiness of God without which no one will see Him, to love His law, to love His gospel, to love His work in redemptive history, and it starts in large measure in Exodus chapter 1. And so for those of you who are parents raising your children who want to know, what do I teach my children? Yes, you teach them about Jesus Christ, but let me encourage you to teach them about Jesus Christ from Exodus because He's all over it. He's all over Exodus, and we need this for the health of our church as she grows and moves into the future. You need it, and I need it for the health of our homes as we instruct our children. You know, every time you say, obey mommy or listen to daddy, you're quoting Exodus. And so let's go there and find the source of that material that God has given us to raise our children and for ourselves to love God as He's revealed Himself and to love His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of every promise, every institution, every office, every building that we're going to come across in this book. They point to Him. They point to Him. It's a great book. And we're going to spend the next number of months as God uh, gives us opportunity studying Exodus together in the morning. So having said all that, let's ask Him to help us now as we embark on our first journey into Exodus together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with Your Word open before us, we come humbly now asking that You would speak, that You would show us Yourself, that You would help us, Lord. Many of us here have preconceived notions about the value of a book like this or its legitimate application to our lives now in the 21st century, would you put all of that aside and simply show us yourself and what you require of us as your covenant people. Help us to see Jesus, we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word. Please take heed how you hear it. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, this morning, I want us very simply to see three things about God in this text. Three things that He is revealing to us about Himself, which serve as a source of strength, and encouragement and sustaining power in any and every circumstance. 
Three things that God tells us about himself that we must know and lay hold of, apprehend is the word we want to use, and believe with all of our being if we are to live how he intends for us to live in good times and bad. Or as the Apostle Paul might put it, to be able to rejoice in all circumstances, to be able to be brought high, to abound, and be brought low, to suffer. Perhaps you're abounding right now. Things are going really well. Life is good. Relationships are healthy. Finances are strong. Bodies feeling strong. What do you need to know about God? We've said it before. It's easy to say, I've got nothing that I need right now. Have you ever solicited a prayer request from somebody? How can I pray for you? No, no, nothing. That good, huh? Life's going that well. I beg to differ. And Exodus is going to show us that we need this God even when life is good. And perhaps you've been brought low recently. You've been brought low through a difficult marital relationship or wayward children or children. This is for you too, our young people who are here right now, teenagers and preteens and kids. Think about this. Some of you live in homes with harsh parents, and you feel low. And life is difficult for you. Or you have broken relationships with your friends because of petty conflict. Or you have difficulties because you don't feel well inside. This is for you. If you've been brought low by the sovereign providential hand of God in relationships or in health or financial situations or in loneliness or the loss of a loved one, what do you need to know about God? This text tells you very important and specific things about who He is and how you can rest in Him because of who He is. Three things that it shows us about God. Number one, God, our God, is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Number two, He is a surprisingly forgiving God. Our God is a surprisingly forgiving God. And lastly, He's a sovereignly ruling God. And each of these three things, I think, will help us in our walk with Christ and in our journey through this pilgrimage that we call life. Look with me at verse 1. God is a covenant-keeping God. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, a little bit of grammar. Is it too early for grammar? Everyone's had enough coffee to get a little grammar lesson. If you had a, a decent elementary school teacher, I know I'm going out on a limb here because a lot of you are homeschooled and you're looking at your mom and dad right now, and so I'm not trying to skyline any of y'all if you've not taught your children this. Uh, if you had a decent elementary school teacher, you know that you shouldn't start a sentence with a conjunction. You don't begin a sentence with the word and. It's bad grammar. It's bad grammar. Little red circle, cross it off. This starts with the word and. And you don't see that in your English translations because I think our English translators learned the lesson too well when they were children, and they're applying it too woodenly as they translate our Bibles for us. But the conjunction and is right there in the Hebrew, and it's telling us something tremendously important about how we're to understand the book of Exodus. Why is the word and there? Because this is a continuation of Genesis. Moses expects that as you come to Exodus, you got there by way of his first book. 
that you're conversant with the major themes and promises and people and works of God in the book of Genesis. And so he's simply saying, and next, they all went down to Egypt. And then they were enslaved by a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. And then he wanted to kill all them. It's just a story. And so he's explicitly linking what he's about to tell us here in these first seven verses to everything that's come before in particular, the promises of God. All of the promises of God are supposed to be running through your mind as your eyes pass across the words of Exodus. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. He's almost verbatim quoting Genesis 35 and Genesis 46, where it gives us the list of those who went down to Egypt with Jacob when Joseph invited his family for protection from the famine. It's almost, it's almost verbatim, except all the kids and grandkids are left out. They're just called 70 here. But the names of the sons of Israel, he's directly linking this to the book of Genesis for a reason, because the promises of God are at the core of everything we're going to read about and discover in Exodus. Those promises, mind you, are a part of God's covenant with Abraham. None of the promises that he made to Isaac or to Jacob, who is Israel, or to any of his children were made disconnected from the covenant of grace in which he entered with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So we need to have a general awareness of the promises God made, the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis. What are a couple important things that he said? Number one, God promised in chapter 12, 15, 17, 22, descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand. You remember that? Go out and look at the stars, Abraham. Number them if you're able. That's what your descendants are going to be like. The sand on the seashore, that's how numerous your people are going to be. I promise you a great multitude of descendants. From your own loins will come forth one who's an heir to you. To your children and their children, there's a generational promise going on there in the covenant. God made promises repeatedly to Abraham about the nation nations that would be birthed from him. Okay, that's number one. That's very important to keep in mind as we move through this text. Number two, God promised Abraham. Now, this one sounds like kind of a bad one. Abraham's like, all right, here we go, getting better, getting a lot of descendants. What else is happening? They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. He does promise him that in Genesis chapter 15, if you recall, in verses 13 and 14, that they're going to be enslaved in a land that's not their own. But and we'll come back to this in a little bit, they're going to leave that place with many possessions. Hold on to that for a little bit. God's promise to Abraham includes suffering, doesn't it? He himself will go to his fathers in peace, he's told, but his descendants will experience suffering. So right off the bat, very simply here, let's make a connection to ourselves, to the church in the 21st century. What does the New Testament teach us who desire to live godly lives in this age? we're going to experience suffering, aren't we? We and our children will. Our children are going to experience suffering. And I'm not talking about national debt. We're talking about the suffering of persecution for faith in Jesus Christ. We're talking about the suffering that besets all mankind from, by, the, by way of enslavement to sin and the consequence of death. We've been promised the same thing just like Abraham was. Okay, number three, God promised Abraham that his descendants would one day inherit the promised land. 
the land upon which Abraham was told to walk, north and south and east and west, and cast his eyes in every direction as far as you can see from the sea to the river. It's yours, but you're not going to get a foot's breadth in it aside from a cave where you bury your wife. And so Abraham was made this promise, this is your land. He built altars all over it. Every time he journeyed in and out, left Egypt, came back, built an altar. Left Haran, went in, built an altar, and worshiped the Lord. And was never given space there. But his descendants, here's that generational aspect of the covenant, don't miss that. His descendants were promised that they would receive the blessing of occupying the land one day. God made promises according to the covenant of his grace in which he entered with Abraham when he called him out of his paganism and told him to follow him exclusively wherever he would send him. Do you hear the gospel in that? Do you hear the clear articulation of the gospel in that? God himself calls us by his spirit irresistibly in the gospel of his son Jesus Christ and plucks us out of our paganism, out of our hatred for him, out of our enmity towards him, out of our infidelity to him as our creator and Lord, and says, follow me and go to the place I will send you, and I promise you an eternal inheritance across Jordan. You know that's the gospel to you laid out in the scripture, that if you come to Christ in faith, all these promises that God has made. Abraham wasn't waiting for a piece of dirt in the Middle East. He wasn't looking for that. He didn't want to build a tent there. He was looking for a land and a city whose foundation and builder was God. Abraham, when he was promised in the covenant of grace, the promised land that his descendants are going to start walking towards here in Exodus, he wasn't ever casting his eyes down at the dirt. He was always casting his eyes up at heaven because that's the promised land. And that's where we're going in Christ. Do you see the gospel and these promises? These promises that God made to Abraham stand at the core of God's covenant, that he would be God to him and to his descendants, that his descendants would reap the benefits of all the promises that God made to him in Genesis. Who does Abraham apply the sign of covenant belonging to? Those children. And it wasn't based whatsoever on their faith, was it? Who received the sign of circumcision? Isaac, the son of promise, and Ishmael. Jacob, the father of Israel, and Esau. Because God made promises, as he does, to households. That's really important for us here at Christ Covenant Church. We'll come back to this. If you are trying to understand why, we're, why Exodus starts with the word and. It's because it's a continuation of all that God promised Abraham in Genesis. It's his redemptive historical plan to bring all things into submission under the feet of Jesus Christ of one day inaugurating through the descendants of these named people his son, inaugurating the new covenant through his son Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah to bring salvation to his particular people, the church. And if you're aware of the covenant of God in Genesis, you'll see it everywhere in the pages of Exodus. It's the book, as we're calling it in our sermon series, of the covenant remembered. Now, of course, God didn't forget, but we need to remember the covenant of God. 
these promises that we read about a moment ago and that we see happening here in Exodus chapter 1, they guaranteed a couple of things. You remember uh, that God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and became exceedingly strong, and the land was covered with them. That sounds like sand on the seashore, doesn't it? It sounds like God is miraculously bringing to fruition the promise he made to Abraham. But beyond that, there's also the promise that they're going to have to go into slavery in Egypt. They're going to be in a land that's not their own. These are the names of the sons who came into Egypt. Egypt is the world. Egypt is Babylon. Egypt was bad. They didn't love the Israelites. You remember when they first showed up, Joseph had to say, don't forget to tell them you're shepherds because they hate those guys and they'll keep you away from them and you won't have to be bothered by them. There was, this was not a safe haven. It was only because their brother Joseph was the prime minister that they were afforded any rights in the country, and eventually all those were taken away. The promises of God meant a great number of people. The promises of God meant that they would be enslaved, and the promises of God, hear this now, meant that they will leave one day. He says to Abraham in Genesis 15, I promise that after those years are up, they will come out with many possessions. What promises has God made to us in his son? And if this God who made these promises to Abraham is the same God that we worship, who's the same yesterday and today and forever, who never changes, it means his promise to you that you'll be delivered from sin and delivered from sickness and delivered from every tear and will one day walk joyfully through the skies out of this place of enslavement to sin and persecution and into his glorious presence, you can guarantee that it's going to happen. Look what he does to his people here in Exodus. He brings them down and then he rescues them. That's our experience in Christ. That's what we have to hold on to in difficult times, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God not only with these 12 men, but look at verse 1 again with me. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. That's not a statement that regards their, that he brought all of his toys with him when he came to Egypt. Like all of, his, all of his possessions, that's not what he means by household. We hear household and we think stuff. They hear household and they think people. Who did God enter into covenant with? Abraham and his descendants. Who did God make promises to? Abraham and his descendants. Isaac and his descendants. Jacob and these men. These men and their children, their children, and their children throughout their generations, and to all who have faith, call Abraham our father because of the generational aspect of the promises of the covenant of grace. Do you know that as you seek to raise your children to know and love God, you must raise them to know about his covenant? That's where the guarantee of the promises that have been made to them rest. And this book teaches us from one end of it to the other how important it is for us to consider our relationship with God in a covenantal way and our relationship with one another. Because these 12, at various times and in different occasions, hated each other, didn't they? 
I mean, they sold J- Joseph into slavery, right? And they, after they decided not to kill him. And what sort of relationship do they have? They're all the sons of Israel because of the covenant made by God to their father. And so the relationship with one another is corporate, like ours is, with each other. Do you see the importance of meditating on these realities that God makes promises to us and to our children? Abraham's been dead for 200 years. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, and then there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and probably a couple more after that before we get to Moses. 430 years removed from the promise made by God to Abraham, and yet God remains faithful. God remains faithful. God makes promises to us and to our children. None of the original recipients of these promises are alive to experience them. And when you and I, moms and dads, grandparents, older folks in the church, when we are gone and buried and happily forgotten, it is the generation after us who will have hold of those promises in their hand by faith. And their children and their children and their children, because God is a covenant-keeping God to you and your family in Jesus Christ. You have to know that when your children wander from the faith. You have to remember that when your best friend's son turns away from Christ, when your nephew rejects God, when your dear friend walks away from the church. God's made promises and he will fulfill them all. One of the reasons that we can find confidence in the fulfillment of his promises is because of his nature. Not only is God, excuse me, covenant-keeping, he's also surprisingly forgiving. This list of names, here they are. Reuben, I just want you to take a mental note in your mind. Mark off all the ones that you rank among the ten best characters from the Old Testament. Heroes, okay? Just pick your heroes from among this list. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Okay, here we go. Uh, These guys rather should be like on the most wanted poster at the local post office in Egypt rather than in anyone's list of heroes. Let's just do a brief survey. Reuben, that, uh, that chap, what did Reuben do? He slept with his father's concubine who happened to be the mother of two of his brothers. Uh, okay, Levi and Simeon, they're the ones that tricked the entire town of Shechem to circumcise themselves, that's using, that's abusing God's covenant sign, in order to kill them all. Levi and Simeon. Okay, uh, who else is on this list? Judah, there's another gem. Judah impregnated his widowed daughter-in-law because he thought she was a cult prostitute. And then there's the rest of them. Anyone who doesn't have a particular story, let's think, so let's add to this list Issachar and Zebulun and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Here, these fellows wanted to kill their brother Joseph out of jealousy, but rather than kill him, it's okay, they didn't. Instead, they threw him in a well and then sold him into slavery. Who among these men deserves to be on this list? 
Do you know why they're in Egypt? Because there was a famine that threatened to kill them. And do you know what they deserved? And yet God, in his covenant faithfulness, sends these men and their families down to Egypt for salvation. He is surprisingly forgiving. I wouldn't deserve to be on this list. You wouldn't deserve to be on this list. And yet, look at where we are right now in this place, being preserved by God and His Spirit for the age to come. God is surprisingly forgiving, and it's because He's covenantally faithful. Because he's made promises that he can't break because it's in his nature to keep his promises and to make his promises according to his character. And so when God says things to you through the mouth of his son Jesus Christ like this, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know what that means? That means you can come to him and he'll give you rest. I'll take your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Do you know what that means? It means that your sins are taken away from you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know what that means? It means if you believe in Jesus Christ by faith, you're saved. Those are promises from God. And He's able to forgive you because of His covenant. All of His promises of eternal life in Jesus Christ are promises of forgiveness. It's the only way to be in His presence He can't dwell among things that are unholy. And so for him to be faithful to his word, to you and to me, through his son Jesus Christ, because of his covenant, it means that he must forgive us in Christ. Not because we deserve it. We don't deserve to be on this list. These guys shouldn't deserve to be on this list. And yet here they are being preserved by God. And here you and I are preserved by God and forgiven in Jesus Christ. God is surprisingly forgiving. And this text reminds us, adultery, Reuben, it's on the list of forgivable sins. Murder and deceit and lying, Simeon and Levi, it's on the list of forgivable sins. Being a total loser of a father-in-law, Judah, it's on the list. Kids wanting to sell your siblings into slavery? It's on, I'm not commending that, of course. It's on the list. When you're angry with your brother or sister, when you're angry with your father, Jacob, because he loves Joseph more, when you're angry with your mother because she makes you clean your room, when you're disappointed in your parents because they're not raising you the way you think you should be raised, when you're disappointed in your kids because they let you down and disobey over and over again and don't seem to get it, when you're disappointed in your spouse because they're not either faithful to you or fulfilling to you, when you're a disappointment all of those things, God forgives them in Jesus Christ because of His covenant. Don't miss that. Why did God send Jesus Christ? Because He made a promise to the world that He would send the seed of the woman who would be the seed of Abraham. We'll look at that tonight. Who would be the descendant of Israel who would come from the tribe of Judah There is no disconnecting the gospel of God in which you and I stand and have forgiveness apart from the covenant of God which is on display for us in these early parts of the Old Testament.
There's just not. God is a forgiving God. Have you ever heard one of our assurances of pardon and thought, that's great. I mean, I love those words, but I don't deserve it. Just be reminded, no one who has ever received forgiveness or assurance of pardon deserved it. Which is why we don't look to ourselves when we come to worship, do we? I don't come in this room on Sunday morning with a list of all my holy accomplishments this past week, and we don't recite those to one another as guarantees of our eternal home in heaven with God. We go to His Word, and we look at His Son, and we remind ourselves in our confession of sin that we still aren't good enough and never will be, but the assurance of pardon means that He is. What does the Bible teach us? What man is to believe concerning God He's the covenant maker, and then what duty he requires of us. How do we live in light of that? That's what Exodus is showing us. You know, knowing that God is a covenant-keeping God and surprisingly forgiving is comforting, and we want to try to illustrate that, and I racked my brain this week, which I'm sure you're thinking, that didn't take much, but I did it anyway for your sake and came up with zero illustrations that emphasize or that, that give some sort of helpful uh, analogy of God's faithfulness. Because there's no comparing God and His nature to anything else. Here were the two best ones I could come up with. We might say, oh, I, this didn't cross my mind. I'll just say one of them. We might say that just as sure as gravity will keep you on the ground or bring you back swiftly to it, so too that you, you can know that God is a covenant-keeping God, okay? Trust, you know gravity is real, right? Some of us know it more than others. If you got that, you know. <laughs> gravity keeps us on the ground, and it will bring you back quickly to it. Just as surely as you know that gravity is real, you can know that God is a covenant-keeping God. But here's the reality, my friends, and you need to believe this in your heart you are more likely to jump off the roof of a building and find yourself floating than you are to find God breaking any of His promises. Gravity does not compare to the faithfulness of God. You are more likely to jump in the ocean and come out bone dry than you are to find God unfaithful to His covenant or His people. He's in a category all by himself, and he's made promises according to his own nature, and they're ours and our children's. He's a forgiving God, he's a covenant-keeping God, and he is a sovereignly ruling God over all things, over all things God rules over the details of how he will work out his promises to his people and on into eternity. Look, here are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Why did they come to Egypt? That awful place where they'd be hated and enslaved and miserable, where they'd have their sons thrown into the river. Why were they there? Because God sent them there. Why did He send them there? Because He sent a famine into the land that they would need to be saved from. Well, how were they able to go? Because they intended something evil for their brother Joseph, but God planned it for good. Do you see how he's been at work throughout the whole book of Genesis to get us to this point? And we see Exodus as a low point in Israel's history. 
It's the, the time where they were enslaved, and that's awful, and the time where they were oppressed, and that's terrible, and the time where they were dying and crying out and feeling lost and forgotten, and that's all. Joseph spends years, a decade and more in prison. He's falsely accused by his master's wife of adultery. Uh, he's sold into slavery and almost killed by his brothers. Things are down, bad, 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 and God was over it all to bring them out so his strong right arm might be revealed to the world. He's sovereign over every detail. What is your present Egypt? Where are you now in which God is planning to work redemption for His glory and your good? All of these guys die there. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your sickness will be cured or your relationship will be healed or your wants will be met in this life. But I promise you, according to God's covenant faithfulness, that those who are in Christ Jesus will have every tear wiped away and every sickness taken away and every broken heart and damaged relationship and sin washed away on that day when Christ brings us to himself. He's sovereign over all the details. Even whatever you're going through right now in this moment, whatever the worst thing that you can think of in your life is, God ordains it. And He redeems it. And He's promised to never leave you in it without Him, without His Spirit, without His people. Again, this is why the covenant is a communal thing. It's the household. We are the household and family of God. The covenant means our relationships with one another means nobody in this room should ever feel alone or left out or on the margins because of the covenant. God's sovereign rule meant that the number of Israelites grew exponentially. You know, there's 12 people here. One commentator said, if each of these tribes had managed 10,000 descendants over the years, that would have been remarkable. But what we rather see is 20 times that number leaving in the Exodus event. Now, I love celebrating the birth of covenant children here in our church. I am not particularly interested in 20 times the number of pregnant moms we have over the course of the next year. That would, I imagine, be tremendous, but that would be a lot. We'd, our water bill would go through the roof But God is supernaturally, miraculously, sovereignly. What is providence? Providence is the most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing, superintending, and, and caring for all his creatures and all their actions, even opening the womb and giving an incredible birth rate to these people in order that he would be faithful to his promise. Look, Israel goes from 70 to 3 million in a handful of generations. What in your life is God unable to handle? Nothing. Nothing. Not because they were particularly good at having children, but because he is particularly faithful to his covenant, to his promises to us. Lastly, and I need to bring this to a close, even verse 6 is a great comfort to us particularly. Look at verse 6. 
There's a couple times this happens in Scripture, and I always remark to people, this is one of my favorite verses. And they always look at me with that sort of inquisitive, are you having a stroke sort of look. (laughs) Then Joseph died. Great verse. Great verse. Because what the, the fulfilled promise of increased generations and great multiplication comes after Joseph died. Joseph, humanly speaking, on an earthly level, was the reason they were in, in Egypt. He was the prime minister. He was there because of their sin and God's providence, right? So on an earthly level, Joseph is the one that brought them there. He was the one that protected them there. He was the one that gave them safety and a home and a place to live. He made promises to them and asked them to make promises to him. He forgave his brothers for their sin. He had his own children. They were growing in covenant faithfulness. All these things are happening because of Joseph. And when he's gone, nothing changes because God is at work, because he is the covenant-keeping God, because it's his church and he preserves it, and he grows it, even when Joseph's gone. Children, even when your father or your mother is gone, God remains faithful to you because of the promises he's made to your household. Christ Covenant Church, we don't have a Joseph right now. Our senior minister is gone, and we're in a transitional period. And look at what God is doing. He's multiplying us. We're baptizing children and welcoming new members and have another new members class coming up next weekend because he is causing us to be exceedingly strong because of his faithfulness, not the faithfulness of any man, not the faithfulness of me, not the faithfulness of our guest preachers, not the faithfulness of our elders, although he uses those means for his good and for his plan, but because of his word and his spirit and his covenant. That's why we are okay. Because God is a covenant-keeping, surprisingly forgiving, sovereignly ruling God. Do you know him as that God? Can I tell you for a second how he reveals himself in all of these ways in one fell swoop? The very first covenant promise God makes in Scripture is to send the seed of a woman. Who is that seed? Jesus Christ. He is the new covenant given for us. Who is the one that offers forgiveness through his blood alone? The Pharisee said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, you're right. And watch this. Get up and walk. Who forgives sins? Jesus does. You can say it. It's a Sunday school answer. I know. Jesus does. Who is the one who sovereignly rules over all things and upholds them by the word of his power? The one through whom not one thing that exists has come into existence. The one who spoke the world into existence and who superintends it as king over all things. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is a covenant-keeping Savior. He is a surprisingly forgiving Savior. He is a sovereignly ruling Savior over his church. And the only way to experience the blessings that are promised in this book, in Exodus, in this book, in the Bible, are through Him, through Him alone, through faith in Christ alone. So as we go through Exodus together in the coming months, keep your ears open and your eyes peeled for the gospel, because it's everywhere, because it's part of the covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of the Bible, for your work in history, for your work in our personal history and our church's history and into the future 
history as you have written all these things down and you are the one who works all things according to the counsel of your perfect will to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask that you would give us wisdom, confidence, assurance, Lord, and trust that you are the very God who's revealed yourself to us in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.